Testing one, two, three. Here I go. Give me that microphone. Welcome to the Badass Recovery Podcast. I'm Pamela. And I'm Melissa. And we're here to give you straight talk. Clarity, people. On the big words full of stigma. Addiction, sobriety, recovery, shame, and even the G word. (laughs) Don't worry, we'll ease you into it. We're two badass recovered alcoholics who've truly transformed our lives through the process of recovery. So be prepared for an unfiltered, deep, and powerful journey. We're about to drop some truth bombs here, but you are here to find your freedom from that thing that is keeping you small. Yes. Let's do this. Welcome to your badass recovery. Hola, hola, and welcome to your first episode. You're here. I'm so grateful to have you wherever it is that you are on your journey, whether you're sober curious or in full-blown addiction and you know it, whether addiction scares the shit out of you as a term and as a concept and you're like, no, hell no. If you're already sober or if you're truly already thriving in recovery, anywhere, anywhere, or, or, or if none of this applies to you and you're just like, Dude, I'm just a human doing human things. This show is for you. And we're so grateful to have you. So welcome. My name is Pamela. I am one of the hosts. And I'm going to tell you very quickly what we're doing in this podcast. This podcast is meant to ditch the stigma, to share with you how we went about getting out of addiction and how to recover openly, wildly, transformatively, and in a very badass way so that you can do the same. Alyssa and I will be sharing one big topic per episode. A topic that's hard and confusing and mucky and sometimes full of stigma. Our hope is that you can ditch that stigma and powerfully transform your life the way that we did. We will be sharing from when we were stuck because we don't forget when we were in that dark place of addiction. A lot of people get better and then they get on a soapbox and they share from there. We fucking don't. We don't forget. Mm -mm. That's our commitment to you. As you already probably heard, we cuss. We have adult language. These are adult conversations. And we're very passionate and very unfiltered. So don't have your kids around. Okay, cool. Um, uh, one last thing is, oh, yeah. Every podcast host tells you or asks you, really, to rate, review, subscribe, and share. But here's the thing. In recovery, the most powerful thing that we can do is share our story and our message of hope. And we desperately need for you to be part of that sharing of this network where we get a chance to truly change the conversation and take people from a point of hopelessness to a point of empowerment and badass hope. So when you do rate and share and subscribe, we can reach more ears. More ears, more healing. So please help us do that. Cool? All right. Now that we got all of that out of the way, let me tell you what we are doing in this first episode. We begin with our stories. It's where we kick it off because we want to let you know who we are, you know, and have you get to know us a little bit. Alyssa and I are going to share our story of what happened 
how addiction started to show up in our lives. Her story and my story look different, as, you know, probably yours are different than ours. Because that's the thing. Addiction can look differently for each person. I will share with you how, in my story, my unprocessed trauma of being kidnapped really skyrocketed my drinking. Alyssa will share her fight with controlling her mind and her body through her relationship with food and anorexia and bulimia. We're going to share how we got out of there, how we realized we had to do a lot of work, and we'll share that hope with you. So thank you for being here. We cannot wait to keep sharing with you. Don't forget to connect with us. We'll tell you more about how to do that at the end. And that's it. Here you go. Let's talk about our stories. Well, hello, babe. Well, hello. I cannot. I'm like chills sitting here. So fucking excited. So we're here to show up in a way that's powerful and bold Mm. and badass and open and vulnerable and real. We're going to talk about all the things. And why are we here, P? I think that we're here because we have experienced in our life a freaking amazing transformation from addiction to recovery. And at least for me, my goal, babe, is to share through the following 10 episodes some of our journey, some of how we felt, how I know I felt caged and small and shamed and separated and just freaking unworthy. And Mm. there has been something incredible that's happened for me in my life today as a result of my addiction, Mm. not in spite of it, as a result, is fucking badass. So we're sharing how it went for us so that we can hopefully create a little bit of impact. And maybe, just maybe, someone gets excited about doing this journey in their own life. I love that. And for me, it's really about taking these huge words, huge concepts that are kind of amorphous, like addiction and recovery and shame and even God. Oh my goodness, we're going there, aren't we? We're going there. Oh my God. And really fucking breaking it down into simple, concrete ways of understanding what these things mean through sharing our own experience. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding, dropping the shame, dropping the stigma. You, you said it earlier, right? The stigma. Like that big, bad, like awfulness that comes with these ideas that can either keep us small or set us free. So tell me your story. (sighs) Wow. Um, I am from Mexico and I was born to an amazing, incredible, loud, fascinating, magical creature of a dad who's Mexican and an elegant, amazing, compassionate, beautiful French mother. Mm. The reason why I talk about my parents and where I come from and, and all the things is because culturally, I grew up in an environment in which there is a lot of alcohol and a mm. lot of joy and a mm-hmm. lot of food and a lot of, you know, just Latin French zazazoo. Mm. And while my brother and I, I have an incredible brother who's such a source of badassery as well in my life. While my brother and I grew up on the outside, just kind of having it all, 
I kind of disconnected from an early age with reality in my own little ways. And I think I, even this whole thing of alcohol being so normal in my Mm. world actually kind of took a little bit of a weird turn for me. And I found myself drinking in a way that was different and became a problem for me eventually. How so? I think I started drinking even in front of my parents when I was, I don't know, probably, I mean, when I was 10 years old, I was given the little sip of this or a little sip of that. And that may sound super crazy for our American listeners, but from the European and Mexican perspective, that's just kind of teaching your children how to drink, how to just a little taste of this, a little taste of that. I want my parents who are amazing parents, but they just didn't know was that drinking at an early age, even little bits and pieces was creating a narrative of this was okay. Mm -hmm. This was what we do. This is what we do, you know, when we have family gatherings Mm. or in social events. And I kind of saw the old ideas of, and I say old because they're old for me now, but at the time there were the, the ideas. When you have a bad day, you have a drink at the end of the day. Yes. When you celebrate, you have a drink. When you, you know, have a stressful day, you have a drink. And so a little bit like of the social glue, an accepted one, was that. And what my parents didn't know is that by me drinking from an early age, is my brain, I guess, started to be predisposed to develop addiction later on. Here's the fun part. I'm not interested in the whys of my drinking differently. I am interested in the fact that from an early age, it started to become a source of relief Mm. for me. Yeah. At age 13, when I discovered how I felt in relationship to the world and even to me with two or three beers inside of me, I felt sexier. I felt Mm. more creative. I felt interesting, Mm. you know, and it was easier. I started to drink because it felt good and fun. Yeah. Now, when I was 18 years old, I had an incredible opportunity to live abroad and I lived in Paris. Mm. And what happened for me there is my identity became married to this visual of the sensual experience of being a girl. You know, at 18, I was transitioning, I guess, into being a woman, like a Mm -hmm. true like woman. And at that point, it was like, I'm a woman of the world. Mm. So the glass of red wine became this romantic identity that I had with the French side of me. (laughs) It was very Brigitte Bardot in my head. And I'll talk about, you know, like how Brigitte Bardot actually like became one of my little like identities in my drinking and being that kind of free bad girl, all the things I wanted to do. Mm. But what's interesting is that I went from that kind of romantic, this is how alcohol makes me feel good in my life. And up until that point, I didn't actually have any more than the regular bad experience, Mm. you know, maybe a little bit of excess here and there, but I don't believe that I drank in an alcoholic way from the beginning. That was Mm. still when, like, it worked. But at age 20, I came back from living in Paris to living in Mexico City. And I had a weird event happen in my life, which was 
very, <laughs> very, very different. I was kidnapped when I was age twenty. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, unfortunately, this was 1995, where in Mexico we had a really corrupt president, Carlos Salinas de Gortari. And I say Carlos, that's funny, Carlos Salinas de Gortari. Just the way that Mexico worked at the time. I mean, we've all seen movies of the federales and the drug lords and all of that. And that was really all around me. And Mm. so we really, the way that I can tell it best is 10 people came into my house. They cut the electricity. They came into my house, knives and guns. It was dark. It was actually, it was April of 1995. And you and I are doing this podcast in April of 2021. So, you know, right around this time. And so I was taken for ransom, very much like a Hollywood script. I was taken for ransom. You can imagine, I mean, from a parent perspective, I now, because I am grateful to have an incredible boy who's 20. I was 20. So I can't even imagine like as a parent, but my amazing parents went through this. They found whatever was needed to help me come back home. So the kidnapping, the ransom, the leave the ransom and the X mark spot, all that crap, you know, Hollywood script happened. And when I came back home, we moved very quickly within a week to the U.S. to find some some relief from being back home, from the questions, from the fear, from not knowing, you know, if we were safe. And what's interesting in relationship to the story of alcohol is that during this time, every night that I went to sleep, I had nightmares. We just moved from one thing to the other. So I didn't take the time to really like work with a therapist or process this really big traumatic experience that had happened for me. And I imagine, can I ask a question about yeah, this? Please. Because I'm just curious if you can share how it felt from the moment they kidnapped you. Like, what was like that like for you? Well, for starters, it was scary as hell because you don't know if you're going to live or die. Right. And now all of a sudden, like the fact that you're living this experience and it's like, you know, when you close and open your eyes and you're like, am I really here? Am I yeah. really in this room? Is there really a bucket for me to pee? Like, am so you're I like really in this dark room? I was, in a, in a, I was in a room that was just like literally bricks and mortar. It was just oh construction. And wow. I didn't know. And I had been blindfolded and there were men outside. There was just a little curtain separating my room from the room where wow. the kidnappers were. I mean, they were having conversations. They were very vulgar. You know, I mean, you could hear them playing with the guns and it was absolutely just terrifying, right? Mm. And it's funny because this is, we'll talk about the whole God scenario later on, but this is where it's a foxhole prayer. It's like, God, if you let me live, I promise, right? You kind of start a bargain, so to speak. And I realized, oh my goodness. I mean, I was 20. And so the question was, if I live, what will my life look like? And if I don't live, can I be okay with that? I know that I had a really, really conscious connection with God at that moment, and I felt carried. Mm. And that feeling of getting carried is an important conversation because I didn't feel carried for the Mm. next few years. Because what happened is, again, let's go back to the U.S. I arrive and I start to have all of these like nightmares. And in the nightmares, of course, I'm reliving all of the trauma. Right. 
And I don't have any resources. I don't have any tools. I'm not speaking to anyone. I'm not dealing with that in any way, shape, or form other than in the way that I was raised, which is we keep going. Mm. We keep going. We're a family. We've got each other. We keep going. We don't talk about it. Like Mm. there's a big elephant in the room. We don't talk about it. We just go. Wow. And in the going and the going, I couldn't sleep. And so I made a really interesting connection. Here's the connection. If I drink, At the time, it was Bacardi Limon, so don't cringe. It's gross. If I drink three or four Bacardi Limon and Diet Coke, if I have enough beer, if I have enough wine, I actually don't have the nightmares. I mean, I was consciously using wine, yeah. alcohol, to pass out at night. That worked for me. Mm. That worked for me. And in moving forward... In the next decade, from 20 to 30, wine actually was my best friend. And the story, the minutiae of the story is not important. It's interesting, and I'll write a book about it. (laughs) Stay tuned. It is, right? But the minutiae is not important because we each have different stories, whether of triumph or victimhood or whatever the hell. But for me, it felt like a crazy telenovela written by a really, really fucked up story writer, script writer. And I just got to play a part. Mm. And that part was not a good part. Mm. So I was the girl who was kidnapped. I was the girl who uh, had to leave her country. I felt like Mm. I was evicted from my world. I was the girl who here coming to the U.S., constantly felt separated and isolated. Mm. You know, I was given terminology to use and I bought into that. I was the wow. alien. I was the foreigner. I was the, you know, all of it. And again, wine was the glue that kept my shit together. Wine gave me creativity, yes. identity. Remember, yes. I was Brigitte Bardot. So I give a shit what they called me. Yes. I was good in my little wine bubble. So let me ask you, where did that take you? Like, ultimately, where did the solution of wine to give you relief from such this traumatic event? as well as maybe others. But it sounds like wine was really the solution for you. So where did that take you? So the way that it played out, babe, is I don't actually know mm-hmm. when wine stopped being my friend mm. and flipped into the opposite role. I don't know. Because wine softened the edges of all of this telenovela victimhood, I was just playing the character. I was playing the part. Yeah. And now, oh, and by the way, the most incredible fucking gift in the world came to me in the middle of that decade from 20 to 30. I actually got pregnant with the most amazing human being in the world, Aww. my child. And during that time, I didn't actually drink when I was pregnant. Wow. And in the early days of his arrival, mm-hmm. the early months, I guess, which was such a, a grace-filled scenario. And as a result of being a parent, I think I was more aware of the drinking But I don't really, I can't point out when that wine went from, it's a source of creativity, connection, integrity with life, whatever the hell it was for me, to, okay, well, I don't really want to drink and now, or I don't want to drink this much, and I am, and now it's starting to have consequences. So I I think I entered my 30s and into the first five years of uh-huh. my 30s yeah. with the awareness that I drank too much. I drank differently. Yeah. And I was more and more having blackouts 
and yeah. and bigger and bigger consequences gotcha. as a result of my drinking. Gotcha. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was really just me not being a good enough something, good mm. enough mother, good mm. enough girlfriend, right. good enough employee, good yeah. good enough, right? Yeah. So it was painful. So even though I don't know exactly how that thing mm-hmm. flipped, mm-hmm. I know that it was in my early 30s that I recognized my drinking was a problem. Mm. Here's what it looked like. I would drink at home. So I wasn't going out to party, right? I was a single parent living by myself with my kiddo in the US. I had a great job on the outside. By the way, my life always looked put together. Mm. Like everyone and their aunt thought I really had my shit together. I was a video producer. I had the heels. I lived in a really, really Mm. nice area. I drove the good car. Like, mm. you know, I spoke three languages. It was like Brigitte Bardot together with like Frida Kahlo, you know, like I was, a, I was a creative badass. Right. To the outside. Right. But every night or even every afternoon, I gave myself this reason why, even though I'd had a bad experience the last time I opened a bottle of wine, mm-hmm. why this time it was going to be different. Mm-hmm. And so little by little, I started to wrap my brain more around the excuse as to why that bottle of wine was the only way to finish the day. Mm. And remember, I had this idea that that was normal and that we drank to resolve certain states of mind. And I had all the excuses in the world and the whole fan of if you had my life, you would drink too. Remember the kidnapping. The single parenting. I mean, just like victimhood galore. So one night in 2009, in November, I take my child Mm -hmm. to a son and mommy date. Mm -hmm. It was our thing. So I go to a movie theater that Mm -hmm. actually allows you to sit and order drinks while you're watching. So it's not popcorn, it's Chardonnay. Yeah. And I tell myself, like every time, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have two. Mm -hmm. Like I was giving myself the two permission to drink permission because everyone does that right Mm -hmm. well I can't have two so I have I don't know eight and I have my kid remember so I drive home with my son beside me and I remember driving knowing that I don't need to be driving but doing it anyway Mm. and when I get home My son, who is nine at the time, is very silent. And we're in the living room, and he looks at me with his big, beautiful brown eyes. And he said, Mommy, I was so scared. I was so scared because I thought we were going to crash. And I feel so bad, Mommy, because I shouldn't have let you drive. Mm -hmm. I should have called your friend. And I I mean, I I cry because I've told this story a hundred times, babe. And it still doesn't take away the pain that I felt in that moment. In that moment, my world collapsed. I cannot tell you how much self-loathing I felt. And that's a very painful place to be. How much love and compassion I felt for my little boy who felt it was his responsibility Mm. to save me. And I went to my bathroom and I fell on my knees. You know, I fell to the floor. And in that moment, I realized something had to to change. Mm. Like, I just couldn't ever do this again. Yeah. And I was terrified because in lesser or bigger ways, I had 
not like this night, but I had already promised to myself so many times that it was going to change and I, I couldn't do it. And so the next day, I did the most radical thing I could do, which was to take myself to the only solution I knew at the time, which was a 12-step meeting. Wow. And that shifted everything for me. And I have to tell you, I'm so fucking grateful Mm. for that moment of bravery because it opened up a completely different life. Oh my god. Now I now I like can clean chills. my tears because <laughs> I have chills. Because I oh just walked god. you through that door that changed everything for me. And that door is what we're going to be spending the next 10 episodes talking mm-hmm. to you all about that. So you're going to get real deep and dirty with us on this. That's coming. But I'm curious in the place that you're at now. What is your relationship with your son now, Pamela? In the last 11 years since that moment that I just mentioned to you, my relationship with that beautiful human of that nine-year-old who's now 20, about to turn 21, Mm. has just become incredible. He is a source of inspiration for me completely. And he's also my teacher because from that very moment, Mm. he put up a mirror of what life could be Mm. through him, for him. And where I stood in my responsibility to be who I needed to be in this world as a human. That's so stunning. I can't wait to hear how you got there. We'll unpack it all, babe. The, the, you know, the 12 step, the non 12 step work, all all the stuff, what was involved. Because this process hasn't been lineal. It has been like a freaking roller coaster. So that is a little bit of my background. So what about you? What about your story? Let's walk through that now. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll just start by telling you that my name is Alyssa. I'm 38 years old and I live in California. And I am madly in love with my life because of where I came from. I grew up in Boston. I was the oldest of four And I was the daughter of a funeral home director and undertaker. I grew up around dead people. Death was very much part of the conversation. That is both freaky and awesome. Right. So it was a very, it was a very interesting paradox in that way. And similar to you outwardly, it looked very normal. Mm. Italian, Irish, very Catholic. And really very, very loving family, right? Through and through. Internally, I am somebody who always was in this deep fear in my mind since the day I could remember. I lived in a world where I was bad. I was wrong. There was something wrong with me. I couldn't do it right. There was just this inner dialogue that was constantly nagging and painful and harsh. And I didn't know what to do with it. I just thought that was true. And I would always look for external ways to sort of relieve myself from the discomfort I felt in my body, in my own mind. And so I was, from a very young age, sugar addict. I would figure out ways to steal sugar, get candy, love the high it gave me. Also was a dancer. 
dance was a place of refuge for me. When I was dancing, I wasn't in my mind, I was in my body. Mm. And so I would spend hours dancing to Motown and dancing to reggae and just whatever my dad had on cassette tapes, I would spend in our basement. And so as I got older, I discovered alcohol when I was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember that first drink, we were sitting outside of my friend's parents' house and we were in a trailer and I had something like a nip. And I remember just this elusive feeling that came over me where I could say anything and everything that came out of my mouth was funny. Mm. And the confidence that came mm-hmm. from that, right? So that was the thing. I didn't have confidence. I didn't, it was elusive to me. And the other way that I sort of sourced that for myself was through my relationships. I would find these people that I could cling on to and really like attach myself to because I perceived them having something figured out that I didn't. So I'm living in a world where my best friend is really God, who I know from church and who I pray to every night to save me from being this bad girl that I was mm-hmm. and really looking for ways to relieve this sense of discomfort and then finding alcohol when I was 14 and having this solution to this voice in my mind that wasn't there when I was you drinking. Yeah, and you weren't like the bad girl that you thought you were, you know, when well, you were in your realm of drinking. It's You know, it's funny because I am somebody that beats myself up for everything. So I really did cheat. I really did cheat on Tess. I really did steal my siblings' candy. Like, I was a kid. But my inner dialogue about that was, you're a horrible person. Mm. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. And that self-perpetuating cycle, the more I heard that voice, the more I wanted to kind of escape my own self. And I would look for things that didn't feel right, like stealing sugar from the next door neighbor. Like I did that stuff because it was a way that I could have this relief, have this temporary peace. And so drinking- alcohol was what got you out of that? Drinking was a way that I could feel confident. There was no other thought. It was just, ah. Right. You didn't hear your own judgment and shame when alcohol was like swimming in your brain, were you? Exactly. And I loved it. Yeah. So fast forward, I'm the kind of drinker that will binge. And the way I lived through my 20s and early 30s is that I would work super hard, like no matter what, whether it was college, whether it was getting my first corporate job, climbing the corporate ladder, I would spend the week being type A, all work, undereat. If I overeat, I would binge, overexercise, and then binge alcohol on the weekend. So you developed also binging in your food exactly. relationship. My world was all about control. It was all about focusing my mind on exactly the structure that I had set myself up in and doing that over and over again, rinse and repeat. I could not tell you what I felt because mostly what I felt was numb. I presented happy, fit, 
joyful, cool girl. Inside, I couldn't feel any of it, which is why when I was 28 years old, I arrived at a point where I'd been dating a man for five years. We were talking about marriage. I looked pretty good and I had this successful corporate job and I could not feel any of it. I could not feel when people said, wow, Lisa, good job. I thought I'm a fraud. But your life looked good on paper. It looked totally good. And I felt like a fraud. Yeah. And so that started me looking in the self-help industry because at the same time, my overachiever went back to school, got my master's in organizational psychology. So see, I could justify all of the success and all of these things I was doing, but inside, I couldn't feel any of it and I couldn't understand that disconnect. And so in searching for not just my own help, but what I could potentially do as a job, I found this coaching company and I decided to sit down with a coach and in one hour with a life coach, she showed me that there was a difference between what I was thinking in my mind and what I was doing. Mm. Because the truth was behind the scenes, I was still lying about alcohol and how much I drank. I was lying about being bulimic. I was lying about under eating. I was lying about thinking, I love this man. I was lying about all of it. It sounds like your whole world. My whole fucking yeah. world. Yeah. You can imagine what a revelation that was oh, for me. Yeah. <laughs> like what a oh fuck moment. It was truly a moment for me that was the first time I realized that the way that I was operating in the world didn't quite work. Mm. And I decided coaching was going to be my solution. Coaching was going to be my everything. And I trained as a coach and I moved to New York City and I arrived with my heels in my dream apartment on the Upper West Side and I thought I had made it. I was going to find the love of my life because by the way, I got out of that relationship and I thought I had arrived and I'm 30 years old. Right. Well, it didn't turn out that way as you Mm -hmm. can imagine Mm -hmm. because as much as coaching was very helpful for me to start to really tell the truth about bulimia, and stop that practice because I started to be open and honest about some of these behaviors. And I started to take some of the right actions. What happened after three years of coaching people was that I got fired from my job. Oh, what do you mean? Why? Well, here's the thing. My relationship to alcohol was a problem. Mm. And the reason it was a problem is because I'm somebody who could stop drinking. I could be abstinent. I could stop drinking for three months, but the whole time I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about drinking. Oh, God. Sorry, I I have to go, oh, God, because that must have been really fucking painful. Like, I couldn't quit drinking at all, right? It was. But you quitting drinking and obsessing about the drink, like, wow. I was thinking about this this morning. I had this thought. So, like, let me just show you an example of my life. So 32 years old, the way that I would organize my week is that I would eat everything healthy. I would go to Bikram yoga at least once a day, if not twice a day. And by Friday, I needed to be at least 104 pounds 
in order to get sugar and alcohol on the weekend. Everything for you was structure, framework, and numbers, rules. So like, I can just remember, like, this is what's fucked up, okay? I remember going to Bikram. I used to go at six o'clock in the morning. I remember I wouldn't let myself have water until I got home to weigh myself. And if I was under 104 pounds, then I could get my alcohol. Like, it was so fucking insane and so small. The world I lived in was so small. I didn't have access to people. I didn't have relationships. I was so afraid of people. I was so afraid of letting them see who I really was. I was in purgatory. I was enslaved by what I now know to be my disease. So I have to tell you, when you tell me your story, and bear in mind, like a few minutes ago, you said you drank to escape your own mind, like that pain of how you framed your life, of how you presented it, of how you kind of, that, I mean, that makes so much sense because alcohol will get you out of all of that structure of your mind. I drank to run away from my feelings. Yeah. You drank to kind of run away from your thoughts. Totally. That's exactly right. And here's the deal. I wasn't that good of a liar. So the results of my life, the unmanageability of me hiding became obvious to people in my life. And therefore, the founder of the company that I work for said, there's something really going on with you, Alyssa. I don't know what that is, but you can't coach people like this and you should make a list of your lies. She asked me to make a list of my lies. And in the list that I wrote down, it was all the moments that I had lied about alcohol. I had gone to a bar and I had said I had one drink where I had the bartender add in extra shots. I had said that I was only going to drink two and I had five. And it wasn't just alcohol. I was lying about money. I was lying about sugar. I was lying about a whole list of things that I was ashamed of. Yeah. And she said, you're fired from your job as a coach. Ouch. Get sober or you can leave the company. She also called me an alcoholic. I did not relate to that at all because in my mind, I said, I haven't drank in three months. Yeah, no I can stop drinking. Right. So it didn't occur to me that I could be an alcoholic. Just to also back up and say, in my family, also similar to yours, Italian. Yes. Alcohol was the main event. And I drank less than most people in my family. So it wasn't something that was obvious to me. Right. But when she said that, what it presented was a choice because I knew that my life was unmanageable. I knew that going to Bikram Yoga and like all of the manipulation and tactics Mm -hmm. were killing me. And I knew the only thing I loved at that moment was coaching. That was it. That was the only thing I found value in. And it's those moments, right, babe, where that oh fuck moment, like you just, you're describing yours. Yeah. Right. I had it in the bathroom floor. Yeah. And it's that moment where you were like, okay, what am I going to do? Exactly. So what did you do? I went to my first 12-step meeting, which was not for alcohol. It was for food. It was for sugar. Good job. And sitting in that room on that first day, what I could relate to was the woman who shared talking about how she 
thought about sugar because mm. I had remembered that from an early age, I would cheat, I would steal, I would lie, I would hide, I would manipulate, I would do all these things. And that was also how I treated alcohol. But for me, it was easier f- to identify that with sugar mm-hmm. than it was to alcohol. And when I went to my first AA meeting, which was the 12-step program I selected, what happened was I did not relate to the stories and to alcohol. I did not relate. I thought, I'm not like these people. Mm. I didn't have a bottom like them. Mm-hmm. But what did happen, grace of God, which we've talked about, that shifted a perception. I sat down with this man who was an entrepreneur who I could relate to. And he started to share his journey with alcoholism. And what he said was, it's not about how much you drink, Alyssa. It's about how you think about alcohol, mm. the obsession about it, right. the control, the manipulation. It was my everything in my mind. Therefore, I couldn't be in a conversation with you because my mind's thinking about alcohol. And he said, point blank to me, that's alcoholism. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either an alcoholic or you're not in the way you think about alcohol. And in that moment, I realized that's just like me. God, in that one little moment of grace, babe, of honesty, right? Of honesty. And we're going to unpack in this podcast all the things that you just kind of talked about, right? We're going to talk about what does it really mean to be an alcoholic? What if you aren't? You don't have to be an alcoholic, actually, to even decide to quit drinking, right? I mean, because again, if you're an alcoholic, you can't decide to quit drinking, but we're going to get into that. But to decide to change your relationship with that. But you're just talking about that obsessing, whether it's with the food, whether it's with the person, whether it's with the alcohol, the pill, the whatever. All of this shit is so hard for us to actually have the honesty to look at. And that obsession without the ability to stop, that's what I now understand is addiction. And so Mm -hmm. why I love this conversation we're in is because we get to unpack these big stigmatized words Mm. and what they mean through our own experience, through our own unique journeys with being on the other side of we're not that, I'm not that, that's not me, to a place we can look with radical honesty and do something about it before even that absolutely but just first have compassion and understanding compassion understanding with awareness and then a pathway just like you said of exactly what to do about it well and this is the cool thing right you're sharing your story i'm sharing my story and the reason for that is because this is our parting point our experience right But as all of this stuff unfolds, we will start to shed some light and some clarity over the process. Like, right, it's not the minutiae, we said it earlier, is the big picture, right? Yes. What is our common thread? And the reason why this is so cool is because you just heard Alyssa talk about her stuff and my stuff and her solution and my solution. Well, guess what? Through the next 10 episodes, you will see that our solution is similar but different. And we have this And that because I am going to tell you in the next episode how I relapsed and how I came back from that. And again, this whole thing is to take the stigma out, but 
to present our story to shine the opportunity for you to look at yours. Because it's a conversation, right, babe? It's a conversation, not just among us, but honestly, with everyone who's listening. Let's talk about our agreements, because I think that's a great segue into, okay, so this is our part. What's their part? Where can they expect? Like, what are we trying to do here? Amazing. I think what you all can expect from us is number one, cussing. Ha! Because we keep it real. Yes, ma'am. And also that we are going to be straight with you. Mm. This is not a podcast where we are girls chit-chatting. Right. Our job is to educate, inspire, and inform you with what you need to walk on your recovery path, whatever that is for you, wherever you are. And so for that reason, we're going to be really straight and direct and honest and share from our own experience. And that means we're going to be vulnerable. And by the way, this is not easy, guys. Like we're going to be sharing stuff that that hurts. Hey, I mean, earlier in this episode, I, I had a knot in my throat and I could have said, all right, cut, let's start again. But our commitment, just like we're authentic in our language, in our thoughts, we're going to be authentic with our feelings. We go through the process of getting uncomfortable because we've learned that it's the only way that we get to grow. And so we're going to be in this process with you being vulnerable as a way of growing. And we're giving ourselves permission to do that. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And you can always go to our webpage that we have set up for you mybadassrecovery.com slash podcast. This is where you have all of the resources so that if you're ever at the point where you're like, I want to do something. Yeah. What do I do? Right. That's where to go. Yeah. And I'm glad that you say that, babe, because I've found myself so many times listening to stuff on podcasts and going, what do I do about this? Like what next? And so there you're going to learn a lot more about Alyssa, a lot more about me, and a lot of resources that you can just start to, you know, bring into your life. If you in your life are experiencing in any degree, by the way, with whatever name you choose to give it, this whole journey of doing something that is hurting you, that you don't want to do, like, you know, what Alyssa just described with her relationship to food and to alcohol. For me, it for sure was alcohol. We're going to start also unpacking how codependency was a thing. Toxic relationships were another thing. We all have this, right? And it just really takes a moment of honesty and of willingness to start to shift the narrative. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do with each other. I love that. And And with everyone who's listening. And in that, is hope. Yeah. Hope. Yeah. From two chicks who were exactly where you are. So here we go. So here we go, babe. How we've become people who love their life in recovery, in sobriety, who fucking rock the opportunity to wake up and say, what? What is going to be? You know, what is going to be? How do we choose to show up every day? from that place. 
where life just didn't flow or we felt like shit. And we are so, so deeply honored and privileged that you are here to walk on this journey with us. Yeah, we are. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. If you're liking what you're hearing, we would love it. If you can rate, review, and share, pass it on, pass the message, pass the love, connect with us, go to the page, follow us on social. We'd love to hear your thoughts and uh, show up. Press play on the next episode. Be in this journey with us. We cannot wait to talk to you again. Give me that microphone.